Chapter 17 of Edison's Conquest of Mars. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine. Edison's Conquest of Mars by Garrett P. Service. Chapter 17 The Emperor Survives. Through all this terrible contest, the Emperor of the Martians had remained standing upon this throne, gazing at the awful spectacle and not moving from the spot. Neither he nor the frightened woman gathered upon the steps of the throne had been injured by the disintegrators. Their immunity was due to the fact that the position and elevation of the throne were such that it was not within the range of fire of the electrical ships which had poured their vibratory discharges through the windows, and we inside had only directed our fire towards the warriors who had attacked us. Now that the struggle was over, we turned our attention to Aina. Fortunately, the girl had not been seriously injured, and she was quickly restored to consciousness. Had she been killed, we would have been partially helpless in attempting further negotiations, because the knowledge which we had acquired of the language of the Martians from the prisoner captured on the golden asteroid was not sufficient to meet the requirements of the occasion. The Emperor, our prisoner. When the Martian monarch saw that we had seized the work of death, he sunk upon his throne. There he remained leaning his chin upon his two hands, and staring straight before him, like that terrible doomed creature, who fascinates the eyes of every beholder standing in the Sistine Chapel, and gazing at Michael Angelo's dreadful painting of the Last Judgment. The swift Martian also felt that he was in the grasp of pitiless and irresistible fate, and that a punishment too well deserved, and from which there was no possible escape, now confronted him. There he remained in a hopelessness which almost compelled our sympathy, until Aina had so far recovered that she was once more able to act as our interpreter. Then we made short work of the negotiations. Speaking through Aina, the commander said, You know who we are. We have come from the earth, which by your command was laid waste. Our commission was not revenge, but self-protection. What we have done has been accomplished with that in view. You have just witnessed an example of our power, the exercise of which was not dictated by our wish, but compelled by the attack wantonly made upon a helpless member of our own race under our protection. We dictate terms. We have laid waste your planet, but it is simply a just retribution for what you did with ours. We are prepared to complete the destruction, leaving not a living being in this world of yours, or to grant you peace, at your choice. Our condition of peace is simply this. All resistance must cease absolutely. Quite right, broke in Colonel Smith. Let the scorpion pull out his sting, or we'll do it for him. Nothing that we could now do, continued the commander, would in my opinion save you from ultimate destruction. The forces of nature which we have been compelled to let loose upon you will complete their own victory, but we do not wish, unnecessarily, to stain our hands further with your blood. We shall leave you in possession of your lives. Preserve them if you can. But in case the flood recedes before you have all perished from starvation, remember that you here take an oath, 
solemnly binding yourself and your descendants forever never again to make war upon the earth. We show mercy. That's really the best we can do, said Mr. Edison, turning to us. We can't possibly murder these people in cold blood. The probability is that the flood has hopelessly ruined all their engines of war. I do not believe that there is one chance in ten that the waters will drain off in time to enable them to get at their stores of provisions before they have perished from starvation. It is my opinion, said Lord Kelvin, who had joined us, his pair of disintegrators hanging by his side, attached to a strap running over the back of his neck, very much as a farmer sometimes carries his big mittens. It is my opinion that the flood will recede more rapidly than you think, and that the majority of these people will survive. But I quite agree with your merciful view of the matter. We must be guilty of no wanton destruction. Probably more than nine-tenths of the inhabitants of Mars have perished in the deluge. Even if all the others survived, ages would elapse before they could regain the power to injure us. The Martians Submit I need not describe in detail how our propositions were received by the Martian monarch. He knew, and his advisers, some of whom he had called in consultation, also knew, that everything was in our hands to do as we pleased. They readily agreed, therefore, that they would make no more resistance, and that we and our electrical ships would be undisturbed while we remained upon Mars. The monarch took the oath prescribed after the manner of his race. Thus the business was completed. But through it all there had been the shadow of a sneer on the emperor's face, which I did not like. But I said nothing. And now we began to think of our return home, and of the pleasure we should have in recounting our adventures to our friends on the earth, who were doubtless eagerly waiting for news from us. We knew they had been watching Mars with powerful telescopes, and we were also eager to learn how much they had seen and how much they had been able to guess of our proceedings. But a day or two at least would be required to overhaul the electrical ships and to examine the state of our provisions. Those which we had brought from the earth, it will be remembered, had been spoiled, and we had been compelled to replace them from the compressed provisions found in the Martian storehouse. This compressed food had proved not only exceedingly agreeable to the taste, but very nourishing, and all of us had grown extremely fond of it. A new supply, however, would be needed in order to carry us back to the earth. At least sixty days would be required for the homeward journey, because we could hardly expect to start from Mars with the same initial velocity which we had been able to generate on leaving home. In considering the matter of provisioning the fleet, it finally became necessary to take an account of our losses. This was a thing that we had all shrunk from, because they had seemed to us almost too terrible to be borne. But now the facts had to be faced. Out of the hundred ships carrying something more than two thousand souls, with which we had quitted the earth, there remained only fifty-five ships and one thousand eighty-five men. All the others had been lost in our terrific encounters with the Martians, and particularly in our first disastrous battle beneath the clouds. Preparing to Return Among the lost were many men whose names were famous upon the earth, and whose death would be widely deplored when the news of it was received upon their native planet. 
Fortunately, this number did not include any of those whom I have had occasion to mention in the course of this narrative. The venerable Lord Kelvin, who, notwithstanding his age and his pacific disposition, proper to a man of science, had behaved with the courage and coolness of a veteran in every crisis. Monsignor Moisson, the eminent chemist, Professor Sylvanus P. Thompson, and the Heidelberg professor, to whom we all felt under special obligations, because he had opened to our comprehension the charming lips of Aina, all these had survived, and were about to return with us to earth. It seemed to some of us almost heartless to deprive the Martians who still remained alive of any of the provisions which they themselves would require to tide them over the long period, which must elapse before the recession of the flood should enable them to discover the sites of their ruined homes and to find the means of sustenance. But necessity was now our only law. We learned from Aina that there must be stores of provisions in the neighborhood of the palace, because it was the custom of the Martians to lay up such stores during the harvest time in each Martian year, in order to provide against the contingency of an extraordinary draft. It was not with very good grace that the Martian emperor acceded to our demands that one of the storehouses should be opened, but resistance was useless, and of course we had our way. The supplies of water which we brought from earth, owing to a peculiar process invented by Monsieur Moisson, had been kept in exceedingly good condition, but they were now running low, and it became necessary to replenish them also. This was easily done from the southern ocean, for on Mars, since the leveling of the continental elevations brought about many years ago, there is comparatively little salinity in the sea waters. While these preparations were going on, Lord Kelvin and the other men of science entered with the utmost eagerness upon those studies, the prosecution of which had been the principal inducement, leading them to embark on the expedition. But, almost all the, of the face of the planet being covered with the flood, there was comparatively little that they could do. Much, however, could be learned with the aid of Aina from the Martians, now crowded on the land about the palace. The results of these discoveries will in due time appear, fully elaborated in learned and authoritative treatises, prepared by these seven themselves. I shall only call attention to one, which seemed to be very remarkable. I have already said that there was astonishing differences in the personal appearance of the Martians, evidently arising from differences of character and education, which had impressed themselves in the physical aspect of the individuals. We now learned that these differences were more completely the result of education than we had at first supposed. Looking about among the Martians by whom we were surrounded, it soon became easy for us to tell who were the soldiers and who were the civilians, simply by the appearance of their bodies, and particularly of their heads. All members of the military class resembled, to a greater or less extent, the monarch himself, in that those parts of their skulls, which our prenologists had designated as the bumps of destructiveness, combativeness, and so on, were enormously and disproportionately developed. And all this, as we were assured, was completely under the control of the Martians themselves. They had learned, or invented, methods 
by which the brain itself could be manipulated, so to speak, and any desired portions of it could be specially developed, while the other parts of it were left to their normal growth. The consequence was that, in the Martian schools and colleges, there was no teaching in our sense of the word. It was all brain culture. A Martian youth selected to be a soldier had his fighting faculties especially developed, together with those parts of the brain which impart courage and steadiness of nerve. He, who was intended for scientific investigation, had his brain developed into a mathematical machine, or an instrument of observation. Poets and literary men had their heads bulging with the imaginative faculties. The heads of inventors were developed into a still different shape. And so, said Aina, translating for us the words of a professor in the Imperial University of Mars, from whom we derived the greater part of our information on this subject. The Martian boys do not study a subject, they do not have to learn it, but, when their brains have been sufficiently developed in the proper direction, they comprehend it instantly, by a kind of divine instinct. But among the women of Mars we saw none of those curious, and to our eyes monstrous differences of development, while the men received, in addition to their special education, a broad general culture also, with the women there was no special education. It was all general in its character, yet thorough enough in that way. The consequence was that only female brains upon Mars were entirely well balanced. This was the reason why we invariably found the Martian women to be remarkably charming creatures, with none of those physical exaggerations and uncouth developments which disfigured their masculine companions. All the books of the Martians, we ascertained, were books of history and of poetry. For scientific treatises they had no need, because, as I have explained, when the brains of those intended for scientific pursuits had been developed in the proper way, the knowledge of nature's laws came to them without effort, as a spring bubbles from the rocks. One word of explanation may be needed concerning the failure of the Martians, with all their marvelous powers, to invent electrical ships like those of Mr. Edison, and engines of destruction comparable with our disintegrators. This failure was simply due to the fact that on Mars there did not exist the peculiar metals by the combination of which Mr. Edison had been able to effect his wonders. The theory involved in our inventions was perfectly understood by them, and had they possessed the means, doubtless they would have been able to carry it into practice even more effectively than we had done. After two or three days, all the preparations having been completed, the signal was given for our departure. The men of science were still unwilling to leave this strange world, but Mr. Edison decided that we could linger no longer. At the moment of starting, a most tragic event occurred. Our fleet was assembled around the palace, and the signal was given to rise slowly to a considerable height, before imparting a great velocity to the electrical ships. As we slowly rose, we saw the immense crowd of giants beneath us, with upturned faces watching our departure. The Martian monarch and all his suit had come out upon the terrace of the palace to look at us. At a moment when he probably supposed himself to be unwatched, he shook his fist at the retreating fleet. My eyes and those of several others in the flagship chanced to be fixed upon him. Just as he made the gesture, 
one of the women of his suit, in her eagerness to watch us, apparently lost her balance and stumbled against him. Without a moment's hesitation, with a tremendous blow, he felled her like an ox at his feet. A fearful oath broke from the lips of Colonel Smith, who was one of those looking on. It chanced that he stood near the principal disintegrator of the flagship. Before anybody could interfere, he had sighted and discharged it. The entire force of the terrible engine, almost capable of destroying a fort, fell upon the Martian emperor, and not merely blew him into a cloud of atoms, but opened a great cavity in the ground on the spot where he had stood. A shout arose from the Martians, but they were too much astounded at what had occurred to make any hostile demonstrations, and anyhow they knew well that they were completely at our mercy. Mr. Edison was on the point of rebuking Colonel Smith for what he had done, but Ina interposed. "'I'm glad it was done,' said she, "'for now only can you be safe. That monster was more directly responsible than any other inhabitant of Mars for all the wickedness of which they have been guilty.' The expedition against the Earth was inspired solely by him. There is a tradition among the Martians, which my people, however, could never credit, that he possessed a kind of immortality. They declared that it was he who led the former expedition against the earth when my ancestors were brought away prisoners from their happy home, and that it was his image which they had set up in stone in the midst of a land of sand. He prolonged his existence, according to this legend, by drinking the waters of a wonderful fountain, the secret of whose precise location was known to him alone but which was situated at that point where in your maps of Mars the name of the Fons Juventae occurs. He was personified wickedness, that I know, and he never would have kept his oath if power had returned to him again to injure the earth. In destroying him you have made your victory secure. End of the chapter 17